Well, it's a delight to be before you this evening, and uh, thank you for being here. It's a joy to worship the Lord together, and I count it a privilege to bring God's Word to you. I'm excited tonight to begin this series in March. When I was here in July as a candidate and preached before you, I preached from Mark chapter 2, and I told you a little bit about why I love Mark, and I was sitting here thinking, I don't know about you, but um, many of us have favorite movies that we like to, to watch. And when we get to watch them again, particularly with people, with other people that enjoy them, that brings great joy and delight to our heart. Um, in fact, some movies have almost a cult following. They, they even call them a cult movie because the people love them so much that they dress up like the characters and whenever they're shown in a theater, they'll go to such a movie. I kind of feel like that about the, the Gospel of Mark because I love the story of Mark. I love the way Mark presents it. And most of all, I love the hero of the story, and that is Jesus Christ. And here in Mark chapter 1, we get to see Mark's introduction of his gospel. So a few things I want to look at in general about the gospel of Mark. Um, We've already talked about that it's fast-paced. It shows Jesus through his actions more than through his teaching. Um, It's the shortest of the gospel. It only has 16 chapters. Maybe that's why I like it, because I can read it faster than I could read Luke or Matthew. Um, It was likely written first before the other gospels. Um, Scholars typically agree that um, Matthew and Luke both draw from Mark in their accounts. History and tradition, dating all the way back to the second century, tell us that while Mark is the author, that the Apostle Peter stands behind Mark's gospel. In um, 1 Peter 5, we see that Peter calls Mark his son. And when we think about that, we think about maybe that's why there's some of the distinctive features of Mark that we see as we read it and as we study it. Peter was, was rash and impetuous. He, he just often said what was on his mind. You think about the transfiguration. What did he say? He's like, hey, I got an idea. Let's build three temples right here. You know, he just, whatever was there came out. Um, and we see that Peter, of course, did deny his Lord. But then on the day of Pentecost, he was bold in his proclamation of who Jesus was and of his death and resurrection. And so... That's kind of what we see in Mark, is this bold declaration of who Jesus is. And in vivid description and punchy pace, Mark takes us in just 16 chapters from the beginning of Jesus' ministry to his death and resurrection. And along the way, we see illustrated over and over Christ's authority over sin and sickness and disease and storms and over the forces of evil. And then in the second half of the book, we see... Christ and his suffering and his death and his resurrection. He's not shy to show the struggles that the, that the disciples had, that they, that they sometimes couldn't believe, that they sometimes couldn't understand what was going on. Um, we think about in the middle of the book, in chapter 8, which is kind of a, a hinge of the book, if you will, where Peter makes this great confession, and then just a few verses later, Christ is rebuking him, because even though he says, thou art the Christ, yet he really still doesn't completely get it. 
So I've chosen for a tagline for this message, for the series, the mission of the Messiah. Now I know that that you might say, well, you know, uh, Matthew and Luke use that term Messiah more than Mark does. Well, that's true. But I chose that because it's action-oriented, and it talks about what Jesus came to do. And that's what Mark teaches us. What, does Jesus, what did Jesus come to do? He came on a mission. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh. He became a man so that he might live a sinless life and die a sacrificial death to make us right before a just and a holy God. That's a mouthful of words to say Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He also came to change those sinners into his followers and teach them what it means to be a disciple. And I I think I probably said this before when I was here, and I'm going to say it tonight, and I'll probably say it many more times, that Mark teaches us who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what it means to follow him. And that's why this is a great book for evangelism, because when people don't know Jesus, they need to know who he is, what he came to do, and what it means to follow him. So before we go any further, let's look at this text. And before we do, I want to pray and ask God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, your word is a light. It is a lamp. It is a sword that pierces, and we ask that it would do that tonight. As the gospel of Mark reveals Jesus Christ, may we see Christ revealed through your word tonight. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Mark chapter 1, reading the first eight verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us tonight in his holy and inerrant word. I've got a question for you. What's the best news you've ever heard? Maybe it was, I got the job. Or, it's a girl. Or maybe it was, we're debt free. Or maybe it's, she said yes. All of those are a few words that say, that speak volumes. They are good news. The evangelism program Christianity Explored starts their study of Mark with that question. Because before us tonight in this text is the best news that any of us have ever heard or could ever hear. I find it interesting that Mark begins his gospel in this way. And it's true to his characteristic style that he just begins with a bang. He jumps right in. Now, if you or I were to write a narrative, a biography, if you will, of someone, we might back up. We might start with a little story of a person's parents, the 
the condition of the world in which they were born, um, their, their birth, their, their youth, their growing up. But no, Mark starts, he just jumps right in. The Gospel of Luke is good to give us some of that information of Christ's birth. But Mark dispenses with all that. He jumps right in, and it's like he hits the ground running by saying, in a sense, here's the gospel, and this is what it's all about. It's about Jesus Christ. In fact, the word gospel, as we use it to describe the genre of literature of the first four books of the New Testament, probably came from Mark's introduction here, because he, he introduces the gospel in such a quick and abrupt way. Verse 1 of our text this evening really serves as the title of the book as a whole. And these first eight verses serve to introduce us to Jesus and show that he was the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies and the center of God's purposes in redemption. We want to consider this text under three headings tonight. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel in the Old Testament, and the gospel proclaimed by John the Baptist. First, we see in verse 1, that's the gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark, of course, is not using this term to describe simply the contents of his book. It's about a person. It's about Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sure most of you probably know the word gospel means good news. It carried with it the idea in in Bible times of one who brought good news of victory from a battle. Then the the meaning of it changed a little bit to describe the actual news itself, which would help us understand Isaiah 52, 7, which says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Here in Isaiah, the message of the good news is about salvation and about God's sovereign rule over the world. Mark tells us that this gospel that he is presenting is the good news of salvation through the life and death of Jesus Christ. But who is Jesus Christ? Mark hasn't told us about his birth. He hasn't told us about his youth. He just says, here's the gospel, and it's about Jesus Christ. So, we have to look at his words. He actually tells us quite a bit in just the words that he uses. What does the name Jesus mean? Well, look at Matthew 1. You'll see how the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph when he told him what to name the Christ child. He said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means Savior. It comes from the Hebrew for Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. So the message of the gospel is a message of salvation. Now, for those whose hearts were in the right place and and really understood their sin and their place before a holy God, they knew what that message of salvation was. It was a message of salvation from their sin. However, others looked at and thought, oh, a Savior, He must be here to save us from the political authorities of Rome that has us under their thumb. The hope that Jesus brings is a message of salvation from our sin. It, is, it brings us hope to be made right before a righteous and a holy God. Now, what about that second name, Christ? Is that 
Jesus' last name? Well, I'm sure you know it's not. But it's a title. It's synonymous with Messiah. And it means the anointed one. In the Old Testament, the anointed ones were priests, kings, and sometimes prophets. Christ is all of those, prophet, priest, and king. And Acts tells us that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Christ is God's chosen anointed king. By the first century, the term Messiah pointed to the promised Davidic king that would come. Mark is saying here that the gospel is about salvation and the fulfillment of that promise of God's chosen king in the line of David. And then what does he say? It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This serves to more fully explain the term Christ or Messiah. Because if you look at 2 Samuel 7, you see that God promised to David that he would build a house for his name and establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He said, I will be to him, meaning David's descendant, a father, and he shall be to me a son. The one that would sit upon the throne of David would have a special, unique relationship with God. We know that it means more than just that because it's a term of divinity. It points to the fact that Jesus Christ is God. Very God of very God. Colossians 2 tells us, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. J.C. Ryle said in his commentary, he said that it's very fitting to place this truth at the beginning of the gospel. He says, The divinity of Christ is the citadel and keep of Christianity. Here lies the infinite value of the satisfaction that he made upon the cross. Here lies the peculiar merit of his atoning death for sinners. His death was not the death of a mere man like ourselves, but of one who is over all God blessed forever. We need not wonder that the suffering of one person were, sufficient, were a sufficient propitiation for the sin of the world when we remember that he who suffered was the Son of God. Jesus Christ is very God. So we see that the gospel is about a person. It's about Jesus Christ. And we see that it's revealed in the Old Testament. <clears throat> and this, these quotes here in verses 2 and 3 shed such beautiful light upon this passage and upon John the Baptist's role in his proclamation and his heralding of Christ as the Messiah. There's actually three texts. Mark mentions Isaiah, and that's perhaps the most prominent one. And some could say, oh, well, why didn't Mark mention the others? Well, I think that the gospel writers were so saturated with Scripture that they probably sometimes spoke Scripture from the Old Testament, and, when it, and it just kind of oozed out of them. Wouldn't you like to be like that? where Scripture just oozed out of you when you spoke it without even really knowing that you were speaking it? Oh, to be like that. But Mark here quotes, he says, it is written in Isaiah the prophet. But there's actually three passages, and I want to look at those separately to understand better what he's saying. The first is from Exodus 23, 20, where it says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way, and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Now we need to step back a little bit and think about the setting in which this was originally given. Of course the Israelites were in the wilderness. They had been led out of captivity 
And they had received the law. And Moses was still receiving the law at this time. And this was a promise that God gave to them that he would guide them and guard them on their way to the promised land. So he says, I send an angel, which in the Greek and the Hebrew, the word for angel and messenger is the same thing. He says, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Secondly, we look at Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now this passage directly says that the coming of the Lord will be preceded by a messenger. The coming of the Lord is surrounded by judgment and justice. Verses following this says that, says that he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will purify the sons of Levi. Malachi is saying that the Lord of hosts is coming. He's coming to be the judge. But wait, there's a messenger coming before him that will announce his arrival. Later in Malachi, in, in the last chapter, in chapter 4, we read, and remember that these are the final words of the Old Testament in our English Bibles. It says in verse 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Not only is Malachi the last book in our English Bible, he was towards the end of recorded history in the Old Testament. He was a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah. What was happening at that time? Well, remember they had been in captivity. The children of Israel had been in captivity in Babylon. Some had been able to come back to the promised land. They were trying to rebuild the temple, but the glory was not there. It was not what they had hoped for. They were in the land, but they were not enjoying the full blessings of the Lord. God, but here in this passage in, in Malachi, God gives them hope that Yahweh will come and that His coming will be heralded by a current Elijah. Now the third passage is from one of my favorite chapters in the Old Testament, and that is Isaiah 30. I'm sorry, 40. Isaiah 40. In verse 3, it says, A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Here the context is that Israel is in exile. Isaiah is speaking words of comfort and hope to the exiles. The Lord is coming. Take comfort. This passage opens up with those beautiful words that Handel chose to begin the Messiah, where he says, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. Say unto her that her warfare is accomplished. He's saying, take comfort, people of God. You may be in exile, but the Lord is coming. He tells them in verse 5, that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. And he tells them that the Lord's coming will be heralded by one voice that's crying in the wilderness. Now we could spend all night looking at Old Testament appearances of Christ. We could look, we could start in Genesis 3.15. 
where God said that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. We could go to Deuteronomy 18 where Moses is speaking to the people and saying that God would raise up for his people a prophet like Moses. We could list example after example of Christ in the Psalms, in the prophets, throughout the Old Testament. But what do these three texts that we've just looked at have in common? In Exodus, the people were in the wilderness. They had been in captivity for over 400 years. They were hoping, and at that time that promise was given, they were probably thinking in a few weeks or months we'll be in the promised land, not knowing that 40 years of wandering was ahead of them. God promised an angel, a messenger, to guide and guard them and to bring them into that promised land. In Isaiah, they were in captivity in a foreign land. In sweet words of comfort and consolation, Isaiah reminds them that their deliverer is coming. His glory will be revealed. In Malachi, there were exiles who had returned, but the land was far from its former glory. Malachi tells God's people that one will come, like Elijah, who will be the messenger of the Lord himself. What's Mark doing here? Mark, it's, it's almost like he has these bright neon arrows that's saying, look at John the Baptist. This is the guy. This is the herald that's going to announce the coming of the Lord. <clears throat> the gospel is about a person. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. The gospel is seen in the Old Testament, and Mark is clearly showing his reader that John the Baptist was the one Who would herald the coming of the Lord? John the Baptist proclaimed the gospel. So who was John the baptizer? I kind of like that better. You know, I don't want the Baptist to have, uh, you know, sole ownership of his name. So we'll call him John the baptizer. So who was he? He was the cousin of Christ, the son of Zechariah, who was a priest, and Elizabeth. You read details of his um, uh, birth and um, Zechariah's song in Luke 1. When John was born, part of that, that song that Zechariah sang or spoke was this. He said, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And then in that final verse of Luke 1, he says something that, that we see fulfilled in the passage in Matthew in, in Mark, it says that the child John grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. John grew up in a wilderness. He was a wilderness man. You know, I, I think about some of my boys. They that probably struck home with them. You know, they wanted to to live off the land, and that's what. That's what John did. He, he was a wilderness man. He wore wilderness clothes. He ate wilderness food, locust and wild honey. Now, I don't know about you, but I have had at least one of my sons who has thought it was really cool to eat bugs. Um, and I think he may have done it for kind of the shock value to shock his sister. Um, now, there is some merit to that. Um, and even in Leviticus, it tells us that locusts were clean animals. So, John was not violating the law in doing this, but he he ate what was available. Maybe he dipped him in the honey. I think anything's better if you can dip it in something. 
So, but I don't think Mark is simply telling us this to be sensational. He is telling us this to point to something else. He's pointing to Elijah. Elijah lived in the wilderness and lived off the land. In fact, Scripture, First Kings, or one of the kings, I think it's First Kings, tells us that, that the, the ravens brought him food. And he lived there during a famine. Mark is telling us John is the messenger. He's in the wilderness. He's like Elijah. He's proclaiming the coming of the Lord. What was John's message? It was a message of repentance. Just like the prophets of old who prophesied and called God's people to repentance and called them back to covenant faithfulness, that's what John did. John was a literal modern-day prophet. He's called, he called them out of their former life of disobedience to repentance and promised them forgiveness. And he says, look, here is the one. Here is the Lord. You've been in the wilderness. I'm in the wilderness. But this is the one who will lead you out. I'm not even worthy to undo his sandals. I'm baptizing you with a, with a baptism to repentance, a symbolic baptism of cleansing from your sins. But look, Jesus will baptize you with something far greater. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This evening, the gospel is a gospel of a person about a man, but not just any man. It's a good news about the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah who came into the world to bring salvation. And that's the mission of the Messiah. Jesus came to a people in a personal and proverbial wilderness. He came to bring a new exodus out of the life of sin into a life of salvation in Jesus Christ. I ask you tonight, are you in a wilderness? In the book of Numbers, which interestingly, in the Hebrew, the title of the books are the first line of the text. And it is, in the wilderness. So when you think of Numbers, think of the wilderness. But in Numbers, we read of how Israel's disobedience cost them, caused them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. In Kings and in Jeremiah, we read the, the sad tale of how Israel's idolatry caused them to be carried away into Babylon and be in captivity for many years. Their sinfulness kept them from enjoying the blessings that should have been theirs. So I ask you tonight, if you are wandering in a wilderness, there's hope in the gospel for you. If you are apart from God, if you are in exile... The message of the gospel is that Jesus came to lead the exile home. He came to lead us into the full enjoyment of his covenant blessings. And it's done by heeding the message of John the Baptist, which was the message of Christ as well, to repent and trust in Christ. Believe in the promised one, the one who fulfills all prophecy, Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it's a privilege to be counted part of your family. Lord, if there's anyone here that has not encountered Christ the Messiah and trusted in him as their Savior, may this be the day of their salvation, Lord, we pray. Thank you for your mercy and grace and for the gospel we see and the way that Mark presents it to us. Give us grace as we go from here tonight 
to live a life that is pleasing to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.